Welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where female founders step into our world. It's a world of change makers and innovators. We're talking to women paving their own way and extracting the very best lessons. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for ambitious women who are building businesses of the future. So strap in, fellow Lady Brain, and ride with us to Ladyland. In this episode, we're talking about the entrepreneurial gender gap. Thus far on the podcast, you've heard us talk to amazing female founders who've shared inspirational stories about how they've built their brands and their businesses. And these inspirational stories are really fantastic for female founders, but we feel like we want to use our platform to do more and to help you get your ideas off the ground and grow them into successful businesses so that you can generate cash that funnels back into society. But Anna and I have realised that in order to do more and to have a greater impact, we needed to really understand the entrepreneurial landscape for women. We've spoken to a lot of women in our community. They've shared all of their struggles, but we want to understand it from a systemic and from a societal perspective. And we want to unpack the data, which is what we've been doing. We have discovered this concept called, as you mentioned, the entrepreneurial gender gap, the fact that women start fewer businesses than men. And this was quantified last year by Boston Consulting Group, who um, released some research stating that the gap exists at 4.4%. So basically that means that there is $5 trillion worth of money that isn't being funneled into the global economy because women aren't starting businesses at the same rate as men. That is a huge amount of value that isn't being capitalised on and the payoff for women to realise their full potential and engage in business creation at the same rate as men is huge. And so I guess the question is like, why are we not talking about this more? It's crazy. You know, we're two women in business. We're building a business for other women and we've only just kind of happened upon this gap. Yeah. And I think we do hear a lot about gender inequality within corporates and it kind of makes sense that this is where the conversation is focused on because the numbers in corporates are there. It's very easy to measure. I mean, we know how many female CEOs there are. There are 12 in the ASX 200. There are only 33 in the Fortune 500. Uh, you know, we know that women earn 86 cents to the dollar in Australia. These are numbers that are they're measurable and they're kind of really easy to understand. But what's not clear is the number of women who are not starting businesses or who are starting out but struggling or even failing. It's simply not as measurable, which means that it's really hard to have a conversation around when there's nothing that underpins it. But Anna, there's some good news. Zero recently released the Boss Insights Report, which happens to be the most comprehensive study on small businesses within Australia. While there is still a big gap in business creation and men obviously own more businesses, women are starting them at a faster rate, which is so exciting. Yeah, I think the stat is that two thirds of new businesses over the last decade in Australia were started by women. So that's great. And I think we need to call out that, you know, as a Western country, we're very lucky. We have a flourishing economy and we really value uh, innovation and creativity and success. And I think, you know, entrepreneur even is a very sexy word. Like everyone is wanting to be an entrepreneur. And so we're very privileged. And despite that, the gap still exists. Um, but it is even worse in other countries around the world. I mean, in places like the Middle East and Africa, you know, women have even more trouble starting a business. Um, according to the MasterCard Index of Women Entrepreneurs released last year, women in developing countries have to deal with social and cultural norms. Um, they might have to deal with more hostility and criticism and they're less accepted in society generally. I mean, in some countries, women don't have access to the internet and you know may not even be able to have the independence to drive a car. So the barriers in those places are even greater. And while there are different challenges that women face around the world, there are definitely challenges that bind us. 
And this is supported by um, research. And there are three main issues that contribute to the gender entrepreneurial gap. Firstly, we receive far less funding than men. You may have a great idea, but if you don't have the cash, you're not going to get it off the ground. Secondly, we find it harder to find networks that are going to support us and support our business. And thirdly, we battle with confidence, with this idea of imposter syndrome and with self-doubt. And we believe that we shouldn't be in that room. Yeah, I can't imagine there's a single woman listening who can't identify with that and who hasn't shied away from an opportunity that they were 100% capable of. So we're talking about the entrepreneurial gender gap and it's so important for you to know because it's going to affect the way that you do business. Yeah, so understanding the core underlying factors that contribute to this gap is super important so that we can take actions and steps to counter them. And also I think it's important to note that this issue underpins absolutely everything we do at Lady Brains. We are here to educate and inform and help connect you with the right people and we want to give you the best information possible that will set you up for success. So we're going to dive into the first hurdle, which is funding or the struggle to get money. So we've spoken to Ariane Barker. We went deep. She's the CEO of Scale Investors and she speaks with authority. She's going to speak on the challenges that women face in accessing funding. We have done quite a bit of research and there's been an amazing amount of statistical data um, being um, brought forward in markets over the last five to seven years. Um, A lot of it came out of the US, but now we're seeing this in Australia as well, whereby women are just not approaching the capital conversation the same way as men have. Um, The financial services industry um, has very much been geared towards a male-dominated industry. And having worked in that industry for a long time, I can speak to the fact that I was the only woman in the room for a long time, which wasn't a problem when I was younger. I didn't actually see that I didn't see the gender piece as a problem. But now that I'm older and we're working in venture capital, we're working with closely with female founders, we're, we're recognizing some of the unconscious biases, which you can actually start quantifying things like women pitch differently. Women are a lot more transparent about some of the weaknesses in their businesses. Women are not selling themselves as well as the men. Um, women are waiting to be asked um, optimist style questions. So um, the research tells us that there's a significant underinvestment in female-led businesses. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the contributing factors, in addition to what I've mentioned, are um, the unconscious bias that happens on the investor side. So on the investor side, the other thing that we're seeing, and I can speak to this with with my investment hat, is that even women themselves ask really tough questions of other women. So you'll see male investors um, look for a really sales-focused kind of punchy pitch. And the women will even um, get under the hood of the business and they'll start asking even more probing questions for the negative aspects of a business, which you don't necessarily see happen with male entrepreneurs. It's been quite fascinating. And I know that it takes a lot longer for women to fundraise than it does men. Is that one of the reasons? Because they're continuously asked more questions, deeper questions, and they have to continue coming back and having those conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're actually seeing a lot of women getting caught up in a lot of detailed questions, which the men tend to be able, and I'm generalizing here because I've seen a lot of different styles of businesses and a lot of people, men and women, pitch for funding in capital markets. But yeah, you see the women get caught into this quagmire of detail where particularly women investors are asking tons of questions because they're trying to manage their risks around investing. And then the women entrepreneurs are going into more detail, trying to explain what they're working on. And and you can see the spiral effect happen, whereas the guys tend to hit data points and be like, yep, 
tell me about this. Tell me about this. Is this working? What are your projections? And it's very forward thinking. Whereas the women are like, oh, this is a risk. This is a problem. This is something I'm thinking about. If it doesn't go well, I'll pivot this way. And it, it then opens up more uncertainty. That's a really interesting point because I think we hear a lot about the fact that, you know, there aren't many female investors at the table and therefore it's harder for female founded businesses to receive investment because they're pitching to men who don't necess- they aren't necessarily like them. But you're sort of bringing up an interesting point, which is that f- even female investors, even if they're at the table, they're more risk averse. And therefore it doesn't necessarily mean that female founded businesses will businesses will get that investment from them. Yeah, it's a really interesting time for this whole space at the moment, particularly for startups and entrepreneurs. And that's why Scale Investors has really focused on helping support the entrepreneurs, helping access the capital while we also help educate the market. Because you'll see this consistently happen where um, there's too much detail. And and to your point, the the risk side of the equation, whereas, you know, investing in a, start, a startup is, is risky. And if you, um, and I know you guys have spoken to Joe Horgan at Mecca, you know, she went for a long time looking for access to capital. She had her, her vision, her idea. She was super clear and she was determined. And in a way, that is the profile of the perfect female entrepreneur. But not every woman is built that way. And so what you see is a lot of really technically strong women who are spending a lot of their time trying to overanalyze and over-communicate when actually you just got to be really, really punchy and, and get through that conversation. But yeah, the female investors are the same because um, from an investment perspective, you're not being rewarded for taking risks most of the time. Most people in markets and financial services aren't being rewarded for taking risks. And there's never been a more compelling time post the Royal Commission where investment teams are not being rewarded for taking risks. So we're working in an environment now where we've had the Royal Commission there's in, in sort of the big end of town, there's lots of conversations around risk and compliance. And, and we're trying to nurture this really, really important emerging startup ecosystem. And the women aren't doing themselves any favors. So it's really, really important um, that we're having this conversation. And so what about from the male investor perspective? I mean, you talked about the unconscious you know, gender bias. What's the difference in the way that they uh, you know, seek out businesses to fund? Yeah. So it's, again, really interesting um, working in markets. A lot of the guys who I've worked with who've been um, more pragmatic and more objective have um, looked at deals in very different ways. I think that what's happening in venture capital in Australia, again, is a testament that um, there are well-experienced teams, but they have enough experience that they know how to look at an investment proposition, but they're also open-minded enough to actually look beyond your, your traditional measures of how, how to assess the value of a business. And this is where venture capital is becoming quite interesting, where people who have had different experiences, they're well-traveled, they've, they've worked in a range of different roles, um, particularly people with technology backgrounds, they're actually coming into venture capital and they're, they're almost oversimplifying the analysis required to, um, to vet an investment. Whereas your traditional money managers, and again, you know, most of them are guys, are, are looking to tick a whole bunch of boxes. So in the current market, I, I, I really admire the men who have been a lot more open-minded about how do you value a business? What are the things you're looking for? There's a lot of learnings that we got out of the US on how to look at these businesses. Mm. And the women have been a little bit slower to come to understanding some of those criteria and almost challenging those criteria. Again, what I'm seeing in terms of trend is that women are not as comfortable taking risks and I mean, without putting too fine a point on it, here in Australia, women aren't encouraged to talk about money at all. 
So, um, so that's a whole other layer. And, um, you know, I have two daughters, so, you know, we're always having the, the budget money conversation and talking about, um, how do you approach pocket money? How do you approach spending? How do you think about this stuff? And I noticed that my daughter's friends don't talk about money with their parents the same way. So do you think that's where it starts back home? You know, when you're growing up, you know, having those conversations with your kids or, you know, again, with your friends, you know, at an earlier age and and removing that taboo around totally. money and how much you're earning and, totally. and the challenges that you face. Yeah. And this is one of the things we talk about back at the yeah. scale team, because we actually have really open, um, compelling conversations about superannuation, about retirement, about paying for school, paying for home, paying for car, paying for all these things. And what I'm realizing is that a lot of my peers haven't had these conversations with their parents. So I do think it comes back to the school. And when I first migrated to Australia, I was um, looking at a financial literacy program that the school was running and it was super basic. And I thought, gosh. And then I realized it was the bank's way of, um, so a bank was sponsoring this program in the school. It was the bank's way of, of, of getting new customers into their banking programs for young people. And, um, and then they were talking about lending all the time. So it was almost getting them indoctrinated to borrow from a really early age and, and sign up for credit. And so it just has really struck me over the last little while as my daughters have gotten older, wh- what some of these embedded biases are in society. And to the point that I have friends my age and older than me who say, you know, I don't, I don't manage the money. My husband does that. Or I'm not looking at investments. My husband does all that which I find quite shocking. So what can we practically do to change that? So there's definitely financial literacy. Um, I think what's happening in the current environment um, around female entrepreneurs is, is very exciting. And I think that women reclaiming control of their own financial destinies is extremely important. It's not only essential, it's, it's absolutely important. Mm. Um, I think empowering women and girls to ask questions about um, how money is raised and even when we we at Scale Investors talk to female entrepreneurs, we we spend a lot of time breaking down the jargon. So if somebody's talking to you with a whole bunch of acronyms and throwing a bunch of <laughs> terms at you and saying, oh, this is all done, this is how it works, and it just seems a little bit sus, the, the flip side of that is while you don't want to slow things down, to my earlier point about some of the embedded issues around risk, just be comfortable to ask questions and be comfortable to get answers that you're that you're happy with. Um, it's as simple as that. It mm-hmm. took me years to get to the point where I'm actually challenging people in very um, high level positions to say, can you please explain what you mean there? Because then you realize where some of the financial margins are being taken. You realize where some of the financial products have been structured and there's somebody mm-hmm. getting a cut that you didn't necessarily know about. There's lots of small print. And I think the whole market is coming to terms with this as well. So I think there's a strong piece and we do this a lot at scale around education, financial literacy, and being um, emboldened and empowered to ask ask really good questions. Yeah. And I think that's so important because the whole idea of fundraising can appear really inaccessible to a lot of people and just confusing. And, you know, I think a lot of women don't even sort of see it as an option for them or don't put themselves forward for, correct. you know, the opportunity. Yeah. So th- there are, you know, women that aren't even getting to the table to have the conversation because it's quite, it can be intimidating. It's It can be completely intimidating and confronting. And what really, um, bothers me is when women say to us, oh, we heard about you. We, we, we've been watching you for a while and we, we didn't feel like we were ready. So they haven't even come forward to have the conversation with us to ask some of the questions. And they've spent all that time and energy 
on um, learning for themselves. This is another thing that women tend to do to themselves. And I've done it too. So I'm as guilty as anyone is just, you know, I'm not a hundred percent comfortable with this. I'm going to go and research this myself. And then when I feel like I know what I'm talking about, then I'll talk about it. Mm. Whereas you'll watch exchanges with guys and they'll just quickly, you know, back and forth. And they'll say, explain that to me. What does that mean? I haven't heard that before. And just in a very neutral, direct way, get the information that they need. Whereas women tend to internalize a lot more and take a lot longer to engage in that funding conversation. And so what happens is they end up using the funds that they've raised for their businesses in the time that they've tried to become investment ready. And then they run out of, they run out of runway. So mm-hmm. that's really, um, that's upsetting for me to see. What are some of the things that you would advise female founders who are thinking about um, seeking investment or going through the fundraising process? Do you have any tips or strategies that might help um, uh, like ensure they're successful? Yeah, I think um, forearmed is forewarned. I think, again, you know, coming to um, a group like ours at scale or in, in engaging with um, other market participants who have also been investing in, um, in support Things like Startup Vic does some great programs. Launch Vic has invested in some really quality um, organizations that help to leverage the ecosystem. There's been a lot of work that has happened um, here in Victoria and again across the country to help activate this whole ecosystem. Tap into those. Don't recreate the wheel. Don't try and do it on your own. There's a whole community of people out here who really want to help support founders and recognize how challenging it is for founders to raise capital. There's also a lot of ex-entrepreneurs who've been through that journey themselves. So here at Scale, we have a number of investors who have successfully launched their own businesses, had exits, and now they want to give back by investing in other businesses. So they have a lot of insight knowledge, insightful information to share. So definitely for the women, don't try and do everything yourself. Um, that's one of the, the key pitfalls. The other thing is leverage networks, including scale and others, to get uh, more access to education and um, and engage online. You know, there's some really great conversations happening on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, even, you know, our Instagram page. We've got lots of little things popping up. I think just leveraging what's happening out there is really important. Um, and then coming along and ha- and and booking that meeting time, you know, taking the plunge and getting a face-to-face with one of us on the team where we can actually really understand you, your business, what's driving you, your idea. Because that's nine-tenths of the time, it's really getting in the head of the entrepreneur and understanding what is your business idea? What are you doing with this business? How can we as investors invest in you and your business and then look to get a return? Because that's what it all boils down to. Mm-hmm. And it seems really simple, but it's actually quite hard because it comes down to that contact sport. What do you mean by contact sport? It's the FaceTime. Right. So, um, yeah, the contact board is, you know, and I learned this when I got to Australia because Australia is such a networked market. You know, everybody um, wants to know who you are, where you came from, what's your, what are the, the, the sort of degrees of separation between you and somebody else that they know so they can, so they can humanize you. So um, I think here, even more so than any other market I've ever worked in, and I've worked in the US, um, UK, Japan, and Hong Kong, Australia is the one market where everybody wants to know, who do you know and how do I know you? And so this contacts board is the FaceTime. It's, it's getting the meeting and it's saying, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This is how I need you to help me. This is what, what we could do together. And, um, and the only way you get that sort of traction is face-to-face. It doesn't happen by email. It doesn't happen by phone. You can't just ring somebody up who's actually really, really well-placed to help you without having contact. 
You just heard from Ariane Barker from Scale Investors, and it was a really interesting conversation around the struggles that we have to get funding. And I think she touched on a few really key points. We pitch differently as women. We're much too transparent about our weaknesses. And I think that comes down to this, you know, not wanting to self-promote and look arrogant. Um, And it's something that Sarah Fryer from Nextdoor, who we interviewed in a previous episode, has reinforced. I mean, she talked about the fact that a lot of women go into investor meetings and make their ask and then backpedal on the number. So I think that was a really interesting point. And she also spoke about the fact that we're just not comfortable talking about money. And so if we can't get comfortable with that topic, it's going to be very difficult for us to go into those meetings and have those conversations. So I think one of the big takeouts for us around how to close this entrepreneurial gap and get access to the cash that we need is there is no such thing as a stupid question. Ask all the questions. Ask every single question. Find somebody who has the answer and just get the answer directly from them. Don't waste your time and your precious runway waiting. I agree. Ask all the questions. Uh, The other interesting point we heard Ariane touch on is to find great networks. Um, And this has come out of the BCG report. They say that women struggle to access networks that can help them with their business. You know, we are great at creating social support networks, but we're not so good at finding those people um, that might introduce us to someone else that's, you know, critical, um, that might provide us with funding and that also might give us key information that will help our business. So, you know, you might have a fantastic idea, but if you can't access the right people that are going to help you, you're going to struggle. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think firstly, you know, there are fewer women in those positions of experience. There are fewer female entrepreneurs out there who have achieved that level of success and experience. And so there are simply fewer people to approach. And so it's kind of maths. It's quite difficult to access those people. And, um, you know, Sarah Fry was speaking about it in a previous episode. She spoke about the fact that she was only one of four women in Silicon Valley and her time is limited. And while she really wanted to give back, it's quite difficult from a practical point of view. So I think that's one of the big key barriers. It's not to say that there's not a role for men to play in providing that support, mentorship and advice, but those those networks are really hard to access as well because mm. they're structures that are designed for and by men. I mean, I just think of the golf course and the deals that happened there. And like, we don't get invited to the golf course. We don't. And let's be honest, we probably don't want to be hitting 18 holes. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, I remember when I was in a corporate job, working in a really male dominated environment, you know, we would work with clients and the clients would be taken out by the guys on the golf course. And I missed out on those conversations. And so I 100% missed out on those opportunities and those connections. You know, these traditional structures work for the guys and like, good on you guys, but... They don't work for us. They don't work for us. So um, it is challenging, but I think the good news is the tides are kind of changing. There is a bit of a shift and Mm -hmm. there are women's groups that are popping up like Lady Brains. Lady Brains, yeah. um, That allow women to kind of network and access connections in the way that feels natural to them and authentic. Yeah, it does. And great co-working spaces as well. I mean, we're definitely seeing this shift um, and it's important because we network in a different way. Um, and I think, you know, we need to really lean into that and not try to fit, retrofit ourselves and our style um, to a more, I suppose, masculine way of, of, you know, networking. I agree. I think we need to lean into networking in a way that feels natural to us. And the good thing is there are lots of platforms out there that can help. I mean, LinkedIn is fantastic. Instagram is a great way to network. And we know that CJ Hendry, who we spoke to in New York, connects with people via Instagram. Um, You know, Holly from Pixie spoke about how she has made some incredible connections and 
and brilliant partnerships through connecting with people on LinkedIn, doing her research, asking a really specific question to that person and opening up the conversation in that way. And, you know, there are really amazing groups that you can tap into like Lady Brains, like other female co-working spaces or networking groups that can kickstart the process of meeting the right person. Definitely. And I think the, the really important thing to remember here is that people connect, we connect on a human level, you know, and, you know, Sarah Fryer said to us when she went in to interview with Jack Dorsey, who we know is the CEO of Twitter and Square, um, when she went in to, you know, get the t- one of the top spots, um, she was just vulnerable and she told her story. So don't be afraid to be vulnerable, to tell your story um, and to really open up because that's how people connect and, th- and people will be really interested and respond to that. So we've spoken about the challenge with getting funding. We've spoken about the importance of networking and some really key things that you can do to start building your network. That is all well and good, but to take the action, you need the confidence. You're not going to get the funding. You're not going to meet the right person if you don't have the confidence within yourself to actually make that first step. And so that's the third thing that we're tackling today is our limiting beliefs around our capability and how we overcome imposter syndrome. We need to understand how to address this lack of self-confidence, which seems to be uh, intrinsic in women. And we've spoken to Kate Richardson, confidence coach who's worked with women all around the world uh, in organisations like the BBC, the University of Melbourne and Movember. So Kate, have you heard about the gender entrepreneurial gap? I have indeed. I think it actually, um, it has a lot of parallels with other ways that women are held back in our society. I think there is a lot that it echoes in other workplaces, um, in other cultural contexts. And so what do you think the role of confidence is in closing that entrepreneurial gender gap? It's really interesting because I think confidence has a role to play many points along that journey. Um, For a start, confidence is about helping yourself imagine possibilities. It's about opening up your circle of potential. So if you lack the confidence to really dream big, then you're automatically limiting where you might actually go. Mm. Why do you think that we struggle with confidence as women? Where does it come from? It's such an interesting question. And I, I first became interested in confidence uh, in a previous role, I was working in a big company and I was uh, at a point where my confidence was a bit low and we, we had had a lot of restructures and I had some changes in management. And one day this guy walked in and he was just what I can only call supremely confident. You know, he didn't ever question himself. He wore out a hole in the carpet from his office to the CEO's office. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and it really made me think, where does it come from? You know, is it something you're born with or something that you develop along the way? Uh, and what I've learned through my work is that the answer is yes. Yes, there is an element of um, it being something that you're born with, but yes, it's a skill. It's something that you can learn, something that you can better at and get better at. And it's really important for women to recognise that. And so I know you work with women around the world. What are you seeing at the moment, you know, in, in corporates, but also with individuals? Why are they holding themselves back and what are the opportunities that they're missing out on? Confidence is an interesting one because um, gender definitely plays a role. So um, from the time that we're young, uh, girls, uh, they're much more emotionally mature at a, at a younger age. So they actually learn to recognise um, the kind of behaviour that gets rewarded. So they learn to be nice and quiet uh, when they're young. And what that means is they're not necessarily up for taking risks or making mis- making mistakes. And we know that those are two fundamental behaviours for confidence. 
The other thing is that boys at a young age tend to see failure uh, as due to a lack of effort, whereas girls see failure due to a lack of skill. Uh, And that perspective on setbacks actually follows us uh, from the playground, into school and into workplaces. Uh, And women actually tend to over-personalise setbacks. Um, I'm not sure if you guys can relate to that. I certainly can. Mm. Uh, There's a really interesting story in a book uh, called The Confidence Code. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Yes. uh, Yeah, yeah, so it talks a lot about the science of confidence, which I find pretty interesting. But one of the stories is about uh, Dave Dunning, who's a psychologist at Cornell University, uh, and there's a maths PhD program there that gets to a point where it gets really, really super hard. And when it gets to that point, what he observed was that men tend to say, oh, wow, this course is really tough. So they actually externalise or they attribute the, the issue to something external, whereas women tend to say, oh, I'm just not good enough to get mm. through this course. So to me that really kind of sums up um, what sometimes holds women back. And that's where I think um, the growth mindset is such an important mindset to adapt. You know, we need to view failure as a learning experience, uh, as an opportunity to grow and develop uh, rather than a setback from which we can't recover. Can you go into that a little bit more about this whole growth mindset versus fixed mindset? Because I think it's really interesting and really important to talk about. So growth mindset is a really interesting concept that um, has been developed by a professor called Carol Dweck, and there's a fantastic TED Talk if you haven't seen it. But essentially, a fixed mindset is where you see your talents and abilities as fixed. You don't see yourself as being able to improve. But if you if you have a growth mindset, you always believe that you can improve. And what Carol Dweck identified was the most successful people in life have a growth mindset. They don't see their talents and abilities Um, as fixed, they see themselves as being able to learn and develop. So when they come across a failure or a setback, they think, okay, that's a learning opportunity as opposed to, oh, well, I'm not good at that. The whole perspective is I'm just not good at that yet. And I think it's really interesting because we almost need to take a step back and first be able to identify those thought patterns because oftentimes we might, you know, have this thought that, you know, the reason that I've failed is because of me as opposed to an external factor. But actually first recognising that thought is the first step. And I think oftentimes identifying those beliefs is can be hard if you're not in, in tune with them. You're absolutely right. And that's why it's so important to listen out for that negative self-talk. Mm. Um, and when that negative self-talk switches over into what we call ants, which are automatically automatic mm-hmm. negative thoughts. Um, if you imagine there's a, a highway in your brain and there's a whole lot of cars travelling on this highway and they can get stuck on this particular road just going over and over again. So it's really po- important to bring awareness to your own thought patterns and interrupt that. And so once we've caught that kind of negative thought and we've decided that we're going to lean into a growth mindset and view every opportunity as a learning opportunity, what comes next? What do we have to do next to continue to build on that confidence? Yeah, I think the, there's a few confidence hacks um, which I share with people in a, a workshop that I run called The Confidence Game and growth mindset is certainly one of them. Uh, the other one is really being able to identify your strengths and a lot of people are not clear on what their strengths are, uh, including a lot of people in very senior roles. So it's not necessarily something that comes naturally with experience. Um, or if they are across what their strengths are. They're not very good at articulating them. So it's really important to get clear on what are my absolute superpowers? And by that, I I don't just mean what am I really good at, but what am I energised by? 
because strengths are all about um, appetite because that appetite, you know, the love for doing something, the energy you get from a particular task, um, that's what actually drives you to get better at it and get better at it, to do it more, to practice it, and that's what makes you absolutely brilliant. And the other thing I'd say um, that's really important, particularly for female founders um, and that is closely linked to strengths, is learning to talk about yourself in a very succinct way. Because often we get into situations, whether it's in a networking event or a job interview or perhaps a pitch to a founder, and we start rambling, particularly when someone says, so, Kate, tell me about yourself. And it's like this open invitation to just, you know, um, run a stream of consciousness. So I talk about getting really clear on your three themes. Uh, In other words, what is the impact that you have? So, for example, when someone says, oh, Kate, tell me about yourself, I might say, well, the three themes that define my career are, for example, championing innovation, designing great experiences, transforming teams. And if I can learn to talk about those three things in maybe 30 seconds to a minute each, what it does is immediately it puts me um, in a very confident place. I start the interview or the conversation on the right foot. I land the messages that I want to land and I just feel really good about the beginning of the conversation. And what you'll also find is that the person that you're talking to will often write down those very three things. Okay, she's all about transforming teams or uh, uh, champion innovation. And they'll walk away with those three messages. So it's a really simple technique, but very powerful. Love that. I think it's such a great, yeah, Yeah. it's such a great idea because I have even caught myself going into meetings or, you know, talking with someone who I want to make a good impression on and going into the ramble and kind of going off on different tangents. And I love the idea of taking a step back and actually planning that. It's almost like a pitch. It's pitching your business or pitching yourself. Exactly. You have to craft the message and deliver it really strongly. Um, And And I love that, that three theme sort of framework to work by. Super simple and also it's about the impact you have because often we get into that kind of scenario and we start describing what we do as opposed to what is what is the impact that what we do has. Yeah, what lights us up? What's the impact? What's our why? Mm. Yeah, really important stuff. And I also really appreciate um, the comments around strengths. I know that Anna and I do take our strengths tests and we, you know, we encourage other people to I think that's that's critical. I think you highlight a good point there because often we can be blind to our own strengths. So it's really um, important to uh, get feedback from other people. Um, And the other thing, it's useful if you get feedback from people from different parts of your life. So whether it's a colleague or family or friends, what you can do is identify where you have a strength in one particular area of your life. So for example, um, I, I did an exercise around this recently and something that came through very strongly from people that know me personally was around my storytelling abilities. And I thought that was really interesting because I wouldn't have necessarily thought of myself in that way. But what it enabled me to do was think about, okay, if that's a strength of mine, how can I bring that more into my working life? So it helps you think about leveraging your strengths across the whole of your life. I absolutely love that. So there's a piece of advice that a lot of um, women on our podcast have kind of shared, and I'd love to get your take on it. The whole concept of fake it till you make it and kind of just put yourself forward and pretend like you have the answer or the skills or the knowledge or the capability, what's your take on that advice? The only thing I'd say about fake it till you make it is it kind of suggests that you're starting from quite a low base, that you don't actually have the skills and capabilities to get there. What I think is perhaps more useful is thinking about the fact that you may not have all the answers. And nobody does. And often we forget that. And that's where the whole imposter syndrome really comes into play. So instead of um, thinking about fake it till you make it, I think it's quite helpful to um, look at what are the strengths and talents and skills and expertise that you can bring 
and how might that help you find the answers? How might that help you be successful? There's that old um, example about the job interview or, or the job description where a woman looks at a job, job description and there's one thing she can't do and she doesn't apply for the job, whereas men see one thing they can do and they choose to apply for the job. And I think that's really true. But to me that comes back to just recognising that you don't need to have everything sorted because none of us do. Uh, and that also speaks to one of the key confidence killers, which is perfectionism feeling like you've got to have all the ducks in a row um, and that you are solely responsible for making it work. When the reality is in a lot of scenarios, you're working in a team environment, you've got mentors, you've got support around you. Rarely do you need to have all the answers on your own. Oh, yeah, that's probably one of my biggest battles and I'm trying to leave that in the past, but but changing that and just going, you know what, just get it to a point where it's okay. People aren't going to see the little things that you miss, the little detail that I personally see. And just making that decision has really transformed, I think, you know, the way we do business. So yeah, great advice. Done is better than perfect, right? That's Absolutely. it. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any practical tips for taking that first step? Because as you said, it's all about taking action, but that first step can be, you know, the, the scariest. What can I do? What can we do as our first step? Transformation really happens by grand design. Often it's a series of very small steps. So in a way, I don't think it's that important what that step is. It's mm. more about just beginning to um, take action to propel yourself forward. And that's where um, confidence comes in. That's where momentum kicks in. I think the other thing that's really important um, is celebrating the wins because often we forget to do that, particularly if you're a founder, you're working on your own, you don't necessarily have that team around you that are giving you feedback and giving you a pat on the back to say, good job. And our brain is actually hardwired uh, to think about the negative because, you know, its job is to keep us safe. So it's always assessing for risk. So that's why we need to make sure we're stopping to celebrate, um, you know, that those wins. And that's what builds confidence along the way. We speak a lot about how important it is to be vulnerable. Um, you know, that's how we connect and, and people appreciate it when you share your story. Can you be confident and vulnerable at the same time? Absolutely. And I think the best leaders demonstrate that you can be both. Um, I work with a lot of women who talk about being the quiet voice in the room. And I always talk about the fact that there is power uh, in that and you can be an impactful leader and be a quiet person. Unfortunately, I think confidence is too often associated with very masculine traits, um, with the, the charismatic person that can own the room. Um, but there, I've seen, you know, that, that behaviour of the quiet leader modelled really effectively. And there are things that you can do to really make yourself more visible if you are a quieter person. So, for example, sometimes it can be hard to speak up if you're if you're quieter in a room. Find a question that you can ask. Um, the other thing that you can do is, as a as a good listener, which quiet people often are, find a way to synthesise what other people in the room are saying. There can be real value in that. That was a really interesting chat with Kate Richardson, confidence coach, and she made some really great points. The good news is, is that confidence is a skill we can learn. Action fuels confidence, which means you just have to do it. Just get in there, give it a crack. And once you take that first step, it will then in turn fuel your confidence. 
The third thing, which I think is really important, is to identify your strengths, figure out what you're really good at and do more of that because that will help build your confidence and self-belief. And the last thing to remember is that confidence doesn't necessarily mean you need to be the loudest voice in the room. There is power in being a quiet, confident voice. So if you haven't heard of the entrepreneurial gender gap, we hope that we've been able to bring you up to speed and to shed some light. It's definitely a real thing. And, you know, we want to help educate and connect women in the startup space. And we want to start solving this problem. You've heard of the issues around funding, around confidence and around building a strong network. And so now it's time to take action. We'd absolutely love to continue this discussion with you um, and we want to share more with you because we have so much more to share. So head over to our website, ladybrains.com.au and also join our Facebook group, Ladybrains. Ladyland is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.